Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Robert Pondicio, a senior fellow here at the American Enterprise Institute. We are here this afternoon to take on the question of whether a knowledge-rich curriculum is the next frontier in the science of reading with an all-star panel who I will introduce you to in a moment. Uh, it, it seems odd to talk about content, knowledge building curriculum like it's a hot new topic. It's, it's a drum that some of us have been banging on for many, many years. I like to tell the story of my own uh, journey down this path starting some 20 years ago when I was a fifth grade teacher at PS 277 in New York City's South Bronx and I stumbled upon the work of a guy named E.D. Hirsch Jr. Um, of core knowledge fame. I've said many times since that Hirsch was the one person who described what I saw in my classroom every single day, kids who could decode some more fluently than others, but struggled to comprehend what they were reading. My uh, school staff developers and and literacy coaches had all kinds of explanations for, for for reading failure or difficulty. They needed strategies, instruction, and books that reflected their lives and their interests. They needed us to, as teachers to help them fall in love with reading. Uh, Hirsch, had he actually been in my classroom twenty odd years ago, would undoubtedly have said, "It's background knowledge." So fast forward twenty years, and suddenly, surprisingly, uh, we're having a science of reading moment, and it looks like it has legs. As of July, 32 states, I believe, and the District of Columbia have uh, passed some manner of law or policy related to evidence-based reading instruction. Uh, there's been a parallel HQIM, or High Quality Instructional Materials, uh, push in, in many of those same states. Uh, so rightly or wrongly, the science of reading has tended to become oversimplified to phonics, right? And there's been some pushback and concern that the movement will fail uh, if it doesn't also include knowledge-rich curriculum and, and instruction, which is what we're here to talk about today. Earlier this week, two days ago, actually, Chalkbeat did a big piece on exactly that topic. They noted that much less attention has been paid both among practitioners and policymakers to the role of background knowledge in improving reading outcomes. Uh, all of those recent state reading laws uh, that I alluded to a moment ago pay almost no attention to the role of knowledge in language comprehension. And, and that raises an interesting question to my mind. If we're not attending to the role of knowledge building and uh, being prescriptive, perhaps about or more prescriptive about curriculum, are we actually having a science of reading movement at all? Uh, or is it doomed to underperform? Um, so joining me today to discuss all of these topics and more uh, are Daniel Willingham. He's a professor of psychology, a cognitive scientist at the University of Virginia. Kimiana Burke uh, is with us. She's a senior policy fellow at Excel and Ed. Uh, Larry Berger is the CEO of Amplify, which publishes core knowledge language arts, a uh, reading curriculum. Susan Newman is with us. She's a professor of childhood and early literacy education at New York University. Um, and last but not least, Casey Churchill, who is the principal of Liberty Common School. And, and Casey's here because the impetus for today's discussion was a study that came out about six months ago. I think it was in March or April of this year. It was the first of its kind to examine the effects of a school-wide knowledge-building approach on later reading achievement. It consisted of approximately uh, 2,500, I believe, from memory children who applied to one of um, uh, a number of charter school lotteries in the state of Colorado, including Casey Churchill School, uh, schools that were primarily serving middle and higher income families. And that study, rather remarkably, seems to show that the core knowledge curriculum uh, improved students' cumulative long-term reading test scores by approximately 16 points. Uh, now, to put that in perspective, when the University of Virginia announced the results of this study some, some six months ago, they noted 
putting that 16 point uh, gain into perspective that US students place 15th among 50 countries uh, taking an international fourth grade reading and English test. If national, in other words, if every student in America had that 16 point gain, well, the US would rank not number 15, but number five. So that's, that's a, a, a big effect size. Um, so in a nutshell, what this study showed was that children who attended a core knowledge charter school uh, starting in kindergarten showed stronger reading achievement in grades three through six than those who attended a different, a so-called non-treatment school. Uh, we are going to be taking questions during this discussion. Uh, those of you who are Zoom vet veterans will notice you can't use the chat function, uh, but you can submit your questions on Twitter or X, as we now call it, using the hashtag knowledge rich curriculum or on the event page, uh, you will find a um, uh, an email address for uh, my colleague Greg. Uh, you can email your questions directly to him for, for, for later on in the chat. Um, Dan, I'm gonna start with you, Dan Willingham, um, because I, we were saying before we started, uh, this this topic is so familiar to, to, to us that sometimes I forget to, 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 to say why, why knowledge matters, why background knowledge matters. Um, I invoked E.D. Hirsch Jr.'s name earlier. I, I will say I've also over the years learned as much or more about this topic from you, Dan. Uh, so if you don't mind just kicking us off just to kind of level set us, why are we talking about knowledge? Why does uh, uh, content knowledge, background knowledge matter to, to reading comprehension? Sure. There, there's, a lot, there's a lot to say about it, but to be brief, um, there are two uh, main reasons that I point to. One is that at the sentence level, uh, much more often than we realize, syntax is ambiguous. So we think of uh, the way that reading, reading or oral language comprehension operates is that we've got these rules of syntax that tells us how words relate to one another. Uh, there are times that syntax, the syntactic rules as we would apply them, actually lead to more than one solution. Uh, but we come to the correct solution, the intended solution, what the speaker or writer meant uh, by bringing background knowledge to bear on what we're reading. So, for example, if uh, I read Robert scribbled on Dan's beautiful picture that he was working on, he ran to tell the teacher. The second sentence, the word he has to be resolved because there are two possible reference for he. You probably, if you're an experienced reader, you probably wouldn't notice that there's more than one possibility because mm -hmm. you know that he has got to refer to the person who got their paper scribbled on. You wouldn't run tell the teacher if you had just committed a felony when you're in pre-K. So that's that's one uh, reason that's sort of inherent to language that we need to bring uh, knowledge to bear is syntactic ambiguity. The second reason happens across sentences and across uh, paragraphs, which is that uh, writers and speakers omit information that they figure their audience already has. So my favorite example is Tricia uh, spilled her coffee, Dan jumped up to get a rag. Uh, you, If all you understood was the literal meaning of each of those sentences, you almost certainly don't understand everything the author intended. The author intended for you to understand a causal connection between those sentences. Dan didn't just jump up to get a rag randomly. Dan jumped up to get a rag because Trisha spilled her coffee, the consequence of that spilled coffee, even though that's not in the text at all. So you need to know some things about the world to make to make that inference. You need to know that spilled coffee makes a mess, that rags can clean a mess, people generally don't like messes and so on. So what's 
so remarkable is how good the brain is at doing this. Hmm. We, we just don't notice the extent to which we are bringing this knowledge of the world, content knowledge, to bear on these reading comprehension situations because our brain is so matchless at it. And it's only when we don't have the correct background knowledge that we're confused. That's when we sort of notice something's going wrong here. Okay, and, and, and this, this manifests itself for the purposes of, of classroom instruction, correct me if I'm wrong, that we, we shouldn't assume that students come to school with a wealth of background knowledge that's absolutely, got, absolutely. Got built or taught over the years absolutely and i mean there are you know nationally representative data showing that's true at the start of kindergarten susan can speak to this uh with more precision than i can um but uh, i'll just leave it there the ecls case study is the one i'm thinking of okay casey i want to just get you to jump in for a couple of seconds uh, as i alluded to up top yours, yours was one of the schools in the university of virginia study you have been a longtime um, uh, uh, devotee, I guess we could say, of, of the idea of, of knowledge-rich curriculum and core knowledge uh, in, in particular. Can you just, just tell us a little bit about your kind of your journey as a, as a teacher and now an administrator working, working with knowledge-rich curriculum? Yeah, happy to. So I uh, started teaching core knowledge in uh, third grade at Washington Core Knowledge School in Rochester, Minnesota. And then I moved to sixth grade and I taught in Rochester for a while and then decided to move out to Colorado um, and then taught uh, sixth grade core knowledge here. It's funny, we talk about the continuity of instruction for the students, but the same thing holds true for teachers. You know, mm -hmm. I moved from Rochester, Minnesota as a teacher, and I could step right in as a teacher here at Liberty Commons School. Um, but, uh, and then I started consulting uh, with core knowledge probably around uh, 1998, something like that, a couple of years after I started teaching and, and fell in love with it and um, have only seen incredible success with teaching kids content um, content knowledge. And um, for me as an administrator, you know, I, I have just been kind of in awe with uh, really a lack of change within our public education in regard to teaching kids content. Um, you know, I feel like this our Liberty Commons School started because our, the parents weren't happy with uh, not seeing a coherent curriculum taught in the different grade levels in the regular public school district. Um, I think that one could probably navigate well throughout their educational career and have a good education, but you have to be very savvy as a family to pick that right path and the right teacher, and, and that teacher has to pick the right content, and it can happen. But to me, that be, would be like buying an iPhone and sometimes having it work and sometimes not having it work. You know, let's get consistent in regard to having a coherent curriculum from grade level to grade level. And so that's why Core Knowledge started at Liberty Commons School. Um, you know, when uh, some of the families had twins and they were in, you know, the same grade level, and sometimes kids would come home with, that those children would come home with homework of rich content and, some, and the other kid wouldn't. And that inconsistency really what drove uh, the, the families to wanting a, a rich curriculum. But as an administrator, as I was saying, I, you know, that was a long time ago. And we still see this today where there is virtually zero discussion about content. Mm -hmm. and, I, and it's sad to me because, you know, I go to you know, district meetings and things like that. And, and it's sad to me because Liberty has worked really hard to infuse, you know, content rich discussions with our with our teachers. You know, we want them to be upfront, knowledgeable about the content that they teach. And um, because and, it, and a lot of this is due to the fact that a lot of districts uh, just don't have a good grip on what's being taught. And so then the conversation just leads to pedagogical practices 
And it's a pretty shallow uh, conversation amongst teachers within a district and, and, and across the state. Um, and so uh, at Liberty, we've worked really hard to, you know, have a Colorado core knowledge network to bring core knowledge teachers together where we can talk about world religions or uh, European history or astronomy and really elevate this, uh, this understanding that that knowledge is important and it's in, you know, in, in order to teach reading, we have to teach content knowledge to build their vocabulary so they're good comprehenders. Um, this year, real quick, we, this year we opened up our uh, Aristotle campus and it was really eye-opening to us because we had, we were at the Plato campus, the, the original school, and we just dropped in core knowledge to a whole nother uh, building and, and gave access to a bunch of families that had never been exposed to content. And those kids came in pretty low, uh, they're pretty naughty, <laughs> and they were very low academic and academics and uh boy i tell you what by the end of the year they were well behaved and they were uh they were accessing all the content that we put in front of them and they will rise to the occasion and it's a true testament to uh, raise that bar teach them content and they'll be uh, good readers right I'm, I'm real eager to hear from you because um, i value your perspective um folks may not know this before you were with excel and ed you were the state literacy director in mississippi which has been you know widely discussed uh because of the positive nate results over the last uh several years so so you have you know had a front row seat to that and now a front row seat i think in terms of of, of when we say science of reading and those 30 odd states that we discussed earlier uh, well, well, you're there driving some of that implementation or or, or spearheading that that move nationwide to, to to get those policies and practices in place. So so before we go too far down the content road, how how sanguine are you that we are actually having a bona fide science of reading movement? And and to get to the question I asked up top, if it's not including content knowledge, is it really a science of reading movement? I mean, what's what's the lay of the land from your perspective? Right, that's a great, great question. Um, great discussion so far. Actually, I was just listening and I said, had to remember that I'm on this panel too. Um, <laughs> um, I think that, um, you know, as you mentioned before, over 30 states now have adopted um, what we call read by three legislation, um, which, which seeks to ensure that children are able to transition from learning to read, which usually happens in lower grades, um, to reading to learn as we get to third and fourth grade and beyond. Um, and these policies mainly consist of components around how we support teachers and leaders, um, how we support parents and families, and then, of course, how we support students. But as we think about those who are on the ground, those teachers and, and leaders in, in the schools, um, it includes science or reading professional development, right? This knowledge building component for those teachers who did not um, get this type of knowledge as to how reading and writing develops in, in you know, with with readers, um, then there's this professional development to ensure that they they have this background knowledge of that. And then, of course, literacy coaches and, and then being able to uh, ensure that the right curriculum is in the hands of our teachers and students. So uh, I know that we're, we'll talk a lot more about that. But as it relates to the science of reading, I believe that we've, you know, we have all of these different uh, models or representations of what is included in you know the big five or the, the five components and the debate has seemed to have just been very um just kind of dwindled down to including this debate about phonics right 
Uh, if we look at Scarborough's rope or we look at the simple view of reading, which most of us who are advocates of the science of reading will always put those slides up, right, that have those two models. Um, knowledge and background knowledge, it exists within Scarborough's rope, right? It exists within, within the simple view of reading. But I think that there's just so much conversation around trying to defend that the science of reading is not just phonics, that we haven't brought a lot of attention to what the other part of the science of reading is. So I think that it's there, but yeah. I do think this conversation is important because, you know, as advocates, we also have to do a better job of really lifting out this other piece of it, you know, which includes the vocabulary, the sentence structure, and all of those things that students need to comprehend. And the, of course, make sure that they're getting the right materials um, and that are in front of them and the teachers are equipped with being able to utilize those materials effectively. Okay, I want to stay with you for a second and, and put, invite you to push back if there is pushback to be made to the point that Matt Barnum made the other day in Chalk Beach, which I, I haven't read all 32 states' uh, right to read legislations. Is it correct to say that that states are being reluctant to dictate content to include knowledge-rich curriculum in the in those laws, uh, and 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 if that's the case, then where exactly do we expect this is going to come from? You're, you're muted there. Sorry. I think the ex being explicit about content knowledge is something that these laws have not uh, put into place. Now, I don't know if if reluctancy is the word, or if it's just that when you name these components of reading then it is understood that knowledge is a part of the comprehension piece because what are you comprehending if you're not reading content right um so i think that these laws have been very explicit in stating that um either we're going to look at the strategies that you're using and we're going to ban those three queuing strategies um we're going to um, have a list some states have lists of approved curricula um they made their criteria for these curricula public, which means that it must, you know, whether align to the standards, align to the components of reading and all of those things. But I don't think that any of these laws have explicitly stated um, the knowledge rich curriculum. Because they've explicitly stated phonics, then we're thinking, okay, well, explicitly state knowledge rich curriculum, but it is kind of an understood you. <laughs> it's, it's understood that that is a part of your high quality instructional materials all of those things make up that, um, but it hasn't been explicitly stated um, in a lot of legislation because I think that it is just one of those uh, things that is understood when you're looking at the adopting the high quality instructional materials. Okay, that's a perfect transition to, to, to allow me to put Susan Newman on the spot. You, you're grinning, Susan. You knew this was coming. Um, are teachers leaving ed schools uh, with that understanding? I certainly didn't uh, leave ed school with that understanding. Well, with all due respects, I, I would dispute the the previous comment. Um, I think that we don't understand that comprehension is, in fact, content, um, that children need content in order to comprehend. I think there's an assumption very often that comprehension is a set of skills that children um, go from literal to main idea to inference building. And we're still asking those kinds of questions to children, expecting that if we do it enough times, the children will actually be able to do those things. But the fact of the matter is, one of the things that's so critically important is that we start early. We've got to not only consider content-rich curriculum early 
in children's lives starting at K. But we need to start in pre-K and we need to go all the way through our grades. In other words, many of these laws, and as you know, Robert, we've examined 45 states and uh, District of Columbia laws. Many of these laws go from K through three, but neglect to understand that reading is a process that occurs throughout the children's lifetime. We need to consider the upper grades as well when we think about content knowledge. When we think about what's going on in higher ed, usually I'm the target. You know, um, um, Many people say, well, they are not being taught the science of reading or um, comprehension and knowledge building um, in the higher ed institution. I think that partially that's correct. Um, we've focused on many other issues um, and uh, we focus on whole language for a whole long time, not recognizing um, that the critical skills really need to be um, in place in higher education. So I think the field of teacher education and teacher preparation is really moving toward a recognition of the science. At the same time, I think that the focus on knowledge, and I use the word content knowledge rather than background knowledge. And the reason I say that is the assumption of background knowledge is you come with it. Hmm. Right? What teachers need to do is develop it. And to do that, we really need the content that Casey was talking about before. And we need teachers in preparation programs to be prepared to answer children's questions about that content. Right, right. Larry, I'm particularly eager to hear from you on this on this topic, because um, as a commercial publisher, uh, it's literally your folks who are out there talking to schools, they're talking to administrators. Yes, selling a knowledge rich curriculum. So you probably have a better perspective than those of us who sit in ivory towers and you know pull at our chins all day about this stuff as to whether or not the field is actually responding to the call. Um, so what are you, what are you seeing? Well, we certainly are in the middle of the science of reading transformation. That That's everywhere. But I think the opening assumption that often that means to the schools a commitment to phonics. And they're a little less clear about what happens after kids get from phonics to, to fluency. They know there's this thing called comprehension, but they there's a kind of mixture of the stuff they learned when they were in school, the stuff they were taught in their previous curriculum, and it is always a bit of a leap to get to the the big idea that teaching content knowledge is is how you teach comprehension and the temptation to say well exactly what susan said well we need to do literal and inference and main idea and author perspective and if we teach those strategies kids start to become comprehenders the good news is that teachers figure out pretty quickly that that is not working and I think when you come to them with its knowledge, uh, they're interested because they know that that doing one more main idea worksheet and then two more main idea worksheets is not actually going to be the breakthrough. And so, so I think teachers are receptive to the idea of content knowledge, but it's it's a big idea. You know, adding phonics to your curriculum, you were doing some of it before, you do a little bit more of it, you you get more rigorous about it. Throwing out all those books about people in my neighborhood that used to populate all of K3 in order to read about 
Mesoamerica and ancient Rome and uh, science and, and history topics in young grades, that's, that's a big transformation and it changes what the profession means. I think for the people who've done it, it's quite thrilling and they feel like they are building a kind of fabric of knowledge that is a real foundation for learning, but it's different than what they were doing before. And if someone hasn't told them it's okay, uh, there can be a reluctance to, to make that leap. Or, and so they'll, it's a gesture in that direction. We'll, lead, we'll read a little bit more history than we used to, but not have this idea that we need to structure and make coherent knowledge so that kids can accumulate it as a network of knowledge, vocabulary, intersecting ideas that are what we mean when we say knowledge drives comprehension. Yeah, I, I suppose I had a, in retrospect, an advantage, or maybe I was ripe for the plucking because I was a mid-career switcher. You know, I had gray hair and I was 40 years old before I be, you know, spent my first day teaching fifth grade. And I remember very clearly some of my early, you know, uh, in, instruction in teaching reading, thinking, you know, I, I don't remember doing this when I was in elementary school. And the reason I don't remember it, because we didn't do that. So, so part of, you know, the, all the, the, the skills and strategies and the, the metacognition, the thinking about thinking was not part of my, you know, uh, my, my learning to read. So I describe my own journey here as going from, you know, willing suspension of disbelief to curiosity, to skepticism, to anger and militance. And my, you know, what was supposed to be a two-year mid-career public service stint turned into 20 years and counting working on curriculum issues. Um, hey, Casey, I'm, I'm I'm curious, given what Susan was talking about, about the need to prepare teachers, you've actually hired teachers uh, to teach us. Do they come to you prepared to teach a knowledge-rich curriculum? Um, well, it sounds like I, no. Yeah, well, no, I mean, I guess I, I would say that when we do our new teacher training, we really hammer home the fact that they are going to be content experts. But I wouldn't say that people come to us being a content expert in the Enlightenment period. But what's beautiful about this is that we're able to give them a recipe, a new teacher, a recipe of what they need to dig deep into versus um, look at the other side of this. You'd be in a district school, you'd say, I'm a new teacher, and you've been totally trained on how to teach. And then you say, what do I teach? And they say, well, we're doing the Common Core State Standards. And so they're given these standards to then try and figure out what they're going to be teaching. I think that would be way worse than saying, here's the core knowledge curriculum. If you teach these uh, these guidelines uh, content, you will cover the standards. I always say the standards are like an empty vase and core knowledge is like the water and the flower in the vase. That's the stuff. And so I would much, and if you teach core knowledge, you'll cover the standards. But if you teach the standards, it doesn't mean you're gonna teach anything with any coherency. And so what'll end up happening is in the other realm, the non-core knowledge realm, Everybody just, and it's human nature, you're just going to gravitate towards content that you already know about. So if a teacher thinks that metamorphosis is a beautiful thing and they've got a whole unit on metamorphosis, they're going to teach metamorphosis and science and they're going to make that fit to the standard that, that, is, that they're provided with. The next year teacher, they might think that metamorphosis is really cool. So they're going to teach metamorphosis as well. And so now you've got people doing nothing wrong. I mean, I think it's wrong, but in regard to the Common Core State Standards, they're doing everything correctly. And yet the kids are going to get repetitions or gaps because of this. And so, you know, uh, the thing that needs to be thought about here, I believe, is that we keep talking about content 
And it isn't just any old content. You know, we've got 170 some odd days with these kids. So we have to be very thoughtful about this content and how it's laid out. So some of my worry is when we talk about the science of reading, we talk about just how we need to incorporate content. I'm like, well, I mean, sure, but there does need to be some discussion in regard to who's on, who's teaching what at what grade level as well. And to me, that makes me a little bit nervous because I've heard some conversations from other folks out there that have just said, you know, we need to get, just get content. And I'm like, well, is everybody just picking their own content? Because I think that we want to pick the most, the best content to make us culturally literate. So when we pick up a newspaper and it says, you know, all the world's a rage and it's on teen violence or whatever, that is a a play on words of all the world's a stage by William Shakespeare. So you need to know that because the author assumes that you know that. Yeah. Robert, can I just jump in for just one second? I, I wanted to uh, piggyback on what Casey said and uh, clarify for the audience in case it wasn't obvious about the, the point about coherence, yeah. which I think is so important because when people hear about knowledge and they they hear about the, you know, a more uh, coherent and elaborate version of what I started with about why, uh, background knowledge is so important. They're like, I get it. We we need curricula that are full of stuff. And that's true. But it's, uh, as Casey was saying, it's not just lots of stuff. The stuff needs to be carefully sequenced. Yeah. Because this is premised on the idea that you want the child to have in front of them a text where they have most of the background knowledge that they need to make sense of the text, and perhaps reach just a little bit. Um, but the for that to be the case, then the teacher needs to know what does this child already know. And so the only way you're really going to get that is with a carefully sequenced curriculum that builds on each other rather than it's like, okay, you know, I'm a second grade teacher, you're a third grade teacher, we're both going to have lots of stuff in our curriculum. Uh, that's better than nothing, but uh, it's really not optimal. Okay, then somebody explain to me, please, and explain it to me like I'm four. Um, why I was told as a new teacher, uh, I'll never forget this. I've told the story a thousand times. You know, when, when in my naivete, when I was asking my staff developer, what am I supposed to be teaching? Uh, meaning, where's my content? Where's my curriculum? She said, well, Mr. Pendicio, you're the best person to know what every child needs. And, and as God and my witness, I thought she was making fun of me. I thought this was like a little hazing ritual. Like, okay, yeah, I get it. I'm the new guy, whatever. What am I supposed to teach? She meant it. You know, in other words, I'm supposed to decide what content topics, interests, books will will engage my kids in reading. And I've, I've said ever since, like 20 years later, I still don't think I'm the best person to know what every every child needs to know. So we all agree, right, that there, yes, we need knowledge, it needs to be comprehensive, it needs to be cumulative, it needs to be sequenced. This feels obvious to us, what's the holdup? Why, why does American K-12 education, uh, we've been talking about this for 40 years, why doesn't this happen? I want to add something, Robert. <clears throat> I think your your comments are um, right on target, and I'm reminded that I was in the exact same position as you were. I remember being a fifth grade teacher and saying, "What do I teach?" Um, and having no idea. So one of the things that we know is that a curriculum is absolutely critical. You can't do it on your own. You can't engage in Aunt Betty's uh, curriculum in order to make this happen. But <laughs> One of the things I do want to also add, and I think Hirsch taught me um, this a long time ago, and that is depth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So in other words, one of the things we know is that that sequence and that coherence will build a depth of knowledge. And it's not only important for comprehension. I know we've been talking about that 
all along. But it's also important for the child's sense of identity. So we forget that when children know things, they feel good. It helps them get, get a sense of who they are. So a long time ago, Kevin Crowley used the term island of expertise. And what he noted is that most children feel good when they have a body of knowledge, when they feel that they are expert in a domain. And I think that that's what curriculum can give us when it's well constructed and when it's well sequenced, that it gives children a sense of confidence that they can know something and know it well. Okay, thank you. You're right, but 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 would somebody like to answer my question? Why do we not have well-established curricula? In other words, going back to those 32 states that that are getting correct on reading, but they're not coming correct on curriculum. They're not saying let me hey, just, in, in yeah. Let class, me just in fourth grade. This one. is what you learn in Iowa. In third grade, this is what you learn. Why not? Right. Let me just add it. According to our our. Um, evidence is 45 states and plus DC that have laws, very okay. little attention to background knowledge or content knowledge. And we feel that it's probably related to assuming that the five pillars are the centerpiece. And it goes back to your comment before that they assume that content knowledge is part of, of comprehension. And so we see very little attention to the states of connecting um literacy and content areas in any way we see very little attention to knowledge building at all so oh, I Robert, I'll, I'll, I'm sorry go ahead come on Good. no go ahead I, I did want to clarify for a moment um Susan when you said that you're looking at 45 states um the one and plus DC the one thing that we have done at Excelinet is of course we look at a comprehensive policy when we think about these states that have adopted science of reading laws uh, or even just, you know, some of the components of the policies related to that, we really think about the commitment. So if there's a state that says that we have universal screeners for reading or universal screeners for dyslexia, right, that's just one small piece. Identifying students early is very important. But when you think about, I guess, kind of giving a state credit for making this shift, uh, I think that the uh, the bar as it relates to um, being able to identify with states that are doing that um, has, has gotten you know, a, a bit higher as it relates to that. So when you think about 45 states, um, as opposed to kind of the 32 states that we've been talking about, you know, I, I'd suggest really looking at the kind of the depth and the breadth of what their commitment is. You know, and as we're talking a lot about um, curriculum and content, and it's great, and it's great, Casey, that you're at this core knowledge school and, and all of this content and, and all of these things have been identified, but think about the teachers who go into schools, right, Robert, where they're just told that, this is your curriculum and, and go forth and, and be great. And so all of the things that we think about um, as we put the focus on as educators or as administrators, that we put the focus on not just teaching strategies, not just identifying early uh, students early, but being able to address that. Uh, that is why this movement around not just high quality instructional materials, but states actually saying that these are some of the materials, the curricula that meet a specific criteria. A part of that criteria, of course, is um, you know, having this knowledge being content rich. And I just feel like we do not magnify that enough. And that gets buried when we begin to talk about what this criteria is. But also when the work moves to the school, and I've heard Casey say before, 
around making sure that the teachers themselves have this content knowledge that they're going to teach students as it relates to what's presented to them in the curriculum. So I think there's a, a, a lot of spaces in which we have to build capacity, not just for the knowledge of how children learn to read, also the knowledge of how your curriculum works. Yeah. Uh, and when you think about, you know, Larry and your role and the, the vendor's role, I know that word is kind of, you know, <laughs> cliche, but the vendor's role and the partnership with the school district to not just say, you've purchased this curriculum that comes with all the things and we're we're doing all of the uh, you know integration with science and socials, all of your content says that, but how do we ensure that teachers have the professional development and the opportunities to learn how to execute that curriculum and then also to build their knowledge around the concepts that they're also supposed to be teaching. So I think that we can, and I'm not disputing what you're saying, Susan, I think that we can do a better job of, um, you know, elevating the fact that not just the curriculum that's aligned to all the things in the science of reading, but really to ensure that the content of that curriculum is knowledge rich. And I think that we have to just do a better job of highlighting that, um, especially for those states that have lists now of curriculum. I, I had this idea in my head that maybe one of you knows more about than I do, that um, precious little teacher PD is curriculum specific. In other words, even I think it was David Steiner um, of Johns Hopkins who made the analogy, uh, I hope I'm remember this, remembering this correctly, that the way we do this is like getting your new iPhone where, where you know, it has all these features that you have no idea about, but you just play with it, you know, and, and figure out how, you know, what, what, what you can do with it. But, but, but am I correct about that? Like this, do we, do we know that very, very little uh, teacher PD, teachers get a lot of PD, but very little of it is specifically geared at how to teach the, the curriculum that the school has adopted. That's what we noted um, exactly, Robert, that very often they talk about the five pillars as if they were um, skills separate from any kind of curriculum completely and very little attention on professional development of implementation of a curriculum. And I think that's essential. Um, and and it, it brings to life the skills that um, are part of the science of reading. And I think another big issue with this is that, you know, we're dealing with huge districts. Yeah. And so they're going to be purchasing curricula from vendors that will create like literally kits on pallets, shrink wrapped, that they're gonna offload from a semi into the curriculum building that they will then disperse out to people. And when we think of core knowledge, which is a sequence, an outline of sequence, which by the way, teachers go to teacher school to create units to create, to cre teach that content. But then all of a sudden, when we get into the districts, we just turn and we're like, where's our textbook to teach this? And, the, and we use textbooks, but we are using the core knowledge guideline to then use the textbook as a supplement as a uh, as a resource to teach that curriculum and i the problem i have with those kits is that we end up like larry was kind of touching on it is we end up you know in reading teach about these reading skills all the way through and it, it's a lot like if you were to tell a senior you know practice your math facts it's like they'd learn their math facts they're doing other stuff at this point so you can teach them about the main idea and character and protagonist and antagonist, but then stop, they understand that, move into good works of literature that will help build their vocabulary, have complex texts, uh, show good moral characters, that will really develop them as a, as a reader, good moral character or good moral reading. Um, and that 
is a very complex thing because big districts are very clunky because they're bureaucratic and they need to just say, here's your reading kit. And then we go down that rabbit hole that Larry was talking about where we're just teaching these, you know, either either the content changes because the, the kit's different. Like you literally will get a FOSS kit and instead of doing inertia, it's something different. And so we get these, you know, there's, there's very little um, cross-curricular cross -curricular connections within a domain that can take place because different kits are being purchased. Like literally districts will change curriculum every like four years. And it's about the time when teachers get really used to the curriculum and then they make the change on it. And so to me, I see it as a, as a systematic issue where I don't think it should be that way. I say that teachers should be lifelong learners. They should be able to take an outline from the core knowledge sequence and figure out these units. I worked very hard in third grade and sixth grade to figure out that curriculum and how to best teach my kids. And I have developed units you know, throughout those years and, and gathered resources. And we shouldn't just rely on textbooks. And you know, the other thing I tell people is a lot of times they'll be like, hey, there's 15 chapters in this book. We got to chapter 12. That's amazing. I got really far through the book. Well, what if 13, 14, and 15 are the Civil War? So you just missed you just missed that. So that's not good. And so by teaching the core knowledge curriculum, we can ensure that our students have everything that they need in order to progress to the next grade level. And that's going to get missed if we just buy kits like that. Yeah, I, I, I want to go back to the point because I've, I've and, and I, I hate to be a pest about this, but I don't feel like we wrestled this fully to the ground. Uh, and and Camille, I'm going to ask you about it because you were actually a state level um, you know uh, ed person. Am I wrong to suggest that that there's something about the culture of teaching right now that that we are just reluctant to be prescriptive to say, hey, if you teach fourth grade in this state, this is what you teach. In other words, the cult, I, I, the, the, the person who gave me the advice, Mr. Pandisio, you're the best person to, to, to know. She was giving me earnest advice that to her, that's what good teaching is. It's finding out what what lights every kid up so they'll be an engaged reader. That to me feels like the default setting in teaching, at least the elementary school level, am I incorrect to say that we are reluctant to be prescriptive about content? And 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 how did you handle that in Mississippi, which you know is the the the, the reigning NAEP superstar? Well, you're definitely right, and I want to insert here local control, uh, something that we haven't talked about today. Um, and you know, I, I do always say to state agencies, walk in your authority, right? Uh, but there is this such thing as local control. So I think uh, for so long, the state agency's role has been to provide guidance. Like textbook adoption has been a thing for states since it's been a thing, right? So being able to say that states are, uh, that states now have lists for curriculum, that's that's nothing really new. The, the thing now is that they're being very intentional about ensuring that the um, content, of course, and, and all of those things and the alignment to the science of reading are there. But state books, states have always had these lists for textbooks, any any content area. Um, I think it is, you know, especially now, kind of this year of banning three queuing strategies. There's been a lot of pushback about, okay, well, now the state wants to get into our classrooms. Teachers have always had this autonomy. They've always, you know, we've always said, as you were told, you know, well, you're you're going to be in your classroom and you can do your thing and hear your materials. Um, but the one thing that we are really trying to encourage now is, of course, open your classroom door to make sure that all kids are, are able to learn and to get access to that, um, to those to those great strategies or resources that are being used in the classroom. Uh, but yes, reluctant to uh, say this is exactly what you're going to teach. Um, but to say that 
um, your curriculum, again, all of these things that we're saying now that meets this HQIM or high quality instructional materials model. Now in Mississippi, um, I'll tell you, you know, a lot, a lot of things we can put in a checklist, a lot of things we can say, these are our principles and these are the things that we adopted. But I'll say this, we actually came a little late to the high quality instructional materials conversation. As you know, Louisiana next door had started all of this thing. They had this website with teacher feedback and all of that. It was our teachers who actually told us. We started with professional development. We said we have to start from scratch. We're going to build teacher knowledge. We adopted letters and we started training our teachers in our lowest performing schools and our coaches. And it was actually our teachers that came to us and said, um, well, we're, we have all this new knowledge, but we're going back to our classrooms and our curricula doesn't follow the scope and sequence that you're talking about, right? Like all of these ways in which we should be able to incorporate writing and incorporate these, our curriculum doesn't allow for that. So it was really kind of a response from teachers that really prompted us in, of course, collaboration with CCSSO to begin looking into high quality instruction materials. We began piloting it in some districts. So we really had to go slowly with that because of the local control. But we also had a law that says science of reading. It also names all the components. It also says that students must receive intensive intervention. It also says we have to have an in individual reading plan where you have to actually list the components of reading that your your curriculum addresses and if it doesn't address all components what are the supplemental materials you're going to use to address those so in in different ways we were able to um, strongly encourage we say uh school districts um to adopt these materials that um that would be most beneficial to to teachers and students and that aligned with our professional development on the science of reading. So it was really uh, building their knowledge and empowering them as the educators for them to say what we have in these classrooms that's not working for us anymore. I'd also like to point out, I agree with everything that's been said about teacher autonomy, uh, but teachers are, of course, very responsive to doing what's best for uh, their students. And part of the reason that they want to do the particular things they want to do in reading uh, is that they don't think that content's important. They think that content is uh, incidental and what it's it's a it's a matter of building skills. Teacher of, in fourth grade doesn't say like, sure, fractions important, but let's let someone else do that. You know, like you tell them like we're doing fractions in fourth grade. You're a fourth grade teacher. Go, you know, go to it. Uh, and so I think this the same thing could be true. And Robert, this sort of circles back to the question you brought up 15 minutes ago. This is why no one wanted to tell you what to teach, because they didn't think it mattered. Yeah. All that mattered is that kids love reading, and you're the person who knows your kids. So figure out what's going to make them love reading even more. So all of the solutions that we're talking about, I think, are, are very, very important. But I think it would smooth the way if everyone understood it's really important that we sit down and plan what children are going to know. Okay, so then let's let's this is great. Let's let's war game this out, right? So we, we've identified the problem. Different metaphor. One, we need knowledge-rich curriculum. Two, it's got to be sequence, which means if I if I love teaching metamorphosis, um, uh, Casey, but so, too bad that's going to have to happen in third grade, so I can't teach my favorite subject anymore. So who's going to break this deadlock here? Is this a policy question? Is this a practice question? How if we see this clearly and know what we need to do, whose job is it to make sure it happens so that there is uh, a coherent education for you know from from one end to the other from K to twelve or at least from K to five or K to eight? Whose job? So is Robert, I'll, I I do want to pick up one other side of your 
your question, how did we get here where we were allergic to knowledge? I think it's worth saying, and as a vendor, I, I live this every day, that, that curriculum is bought largely by committees. Hmm. So districts put together large committees of educators to select a curriculum. It, it could be that in Casey's school, that's not actually how it works because they've they've got a more rigorous process. But for most school districts, it's a committee. And as such, the one mistake you could make to upset a committee is to have a strong view of what the curriculum is each year, because I don't want to teach Mesopotamia in first grade. And we got the textbooks that we have because good marketing people and textbook companies said, you know, stories about talking animals seem to not offend anybody. And stories about people in my neighborhood seem to not offend anybody. And so those get adopted by committees. And um, and I think I, I like the democratic nature of committees choosing things, but, but I think part of what Kimyana you know, was part of doing in Mississippi and now at, at Excellent Ed is to say, your committee can choose what it wants, but it has to have these five pillars of what are the foundational skills in reading. And I think a few places, Louisiana being an example, Texas being an example, have stepped up and said, also in those requirements is this idea of sequential knowledge. We're not gonna dictate exactly what sequential knowledge uh, it, it will be at a state level, but at your district level, you've got to decide. And a, a key thing that a lot of states have, or a growing number of states are exploring, and we will make available at least one curriculum that we've kind of endorsed that that uh, jumpstarts the idea that a lot of schools teaching the same knowledge sequence would be good when kids move from school to school, when teachers move from, from building to, to building. And so I, I think the movement is afoot. And the thing that drives it is the thing that, like some of it is the policy push, but some of it is once teachers try it, they start talking about it. They start saying, my kids wanna know stuff. I didn't realize that. I thought they wanted to do main idea worksheets. It turns out they wanna know content. And the more content I give them, the more other content they wanna know. And when they do that, their vocabularies grow and they're interested. So all those things we thought we were doing by asking kids what's in your heart of hearts, the thing you wanna learn about, happens through this unexpected mechanism, which is you're going to learn about Mesoamerica and the various empires that rose and fall, fell. And that doesn't sound like a third grade topic, but it turns out once kids know that, they want to know about other empires and um, and they want to know about how, uh, they, and and they start to see all those windows as mirrors too, that they, they start to, to sort of learn about themselves through that. And when that flywheel gets turning, I don't think it needs to be a policy solution. It needs to be teachers in one school visiting Casey's school, visiting the other schools that are doing this and realizing this is where student energy comes from. It's not just like good medicine. It's it's what kids like doing in school. So Larry, I love what you're saying, um, but I do think policy is really important. So when to answer your question, Robert, I would say we need bold leadership. So one of the things that we know, I'm in a city um, where you know that local control just takes <laughs> a crazy um, uh, position many times with one principal 
picking a curriculum, another principal taking another curriculum, and there is total local control. And as a result, what happens is, as you know, in um, you know urban settings, children are highly mobile. So we see children go from place to place. And so they get curriculum after curriculum after curriculum. So we wonder, why are they struggling readers? Well, because they've been forced to have one set of program after another after another. So the whole idea of local control has gone wild, frankly. And one of the things that we know is that we need consistency and coherence in what children are learning and, and reading. And what that, what, what that amounts to is there's going to have to be a bold leadership that says, this is what we're going to do. This is the track we're going to take. And I think policy is very important here because without that kind of, this is what we're doing, and you either get on the, the bus or, you know, find another position somewhere. But we've got to make sure that our children, this is all about the kids and what the content they're receiving. And this local control where one can choose one thing just has to end. The other thing that I think happens when you have such local control is that you no longer have a shared language. So one of the things that you'll see is that teachers begin to talk to other teachers and they begin to create a community that is shared um, with children also entering that community. So I, I think we have to revisit um, how we've defined local control and um, be not afraid to, at times, um, mandate certain policies and procedures. Okay, Susan, let, let, let me fill in some background knowledge for our audience here. I'm a former New York City school teacher. Larry Berger lives in New York. You are at New York, New York University. And our, our audience may not know that you have been in an advisory capacity in New York City as they choose a reading curriculum. So when, when the new mayor, new uh, when Adams and David Banks, the, the chancellor, took over two years ago, I and lots of others, I'm sure you too, were gleeful when they said, no, we're gonna, we're gonna do phonics, we're gonna do science of reading, no more Lucy Calkins, this, you know, which has dominated New York City for you know over a generation. Um, so they went through a process, you were an advisor to it. Uh, they they decided to actually mandate ELA curriculum, right? They they know if you're if you're a New York City elementary school, you're gonna use one of these three curriculum. And they chose what kind of curriculum, Susan? Not a knowledge-based curriculum. Okay. So what, hap what happened? I think one of the things, Casey, tell me if I'm correct or not, but I think the assumption is that these knowledge building curriculum are more difficult to enact than the traditional core curriculum as we conceive of it. Um, am I correct, Casey, or, or not? Do you, do you think that probably is one of the reasons it's harder it's just it's not a nice palette shrink wrapped that you can deliver on a forklift the teachers need to create units but they've all been taught how to do that in college school you know in, in okay. college so to no, me, no, no. No. create units no oh. well i, I do want to that that come, that's what they did they only created units and so the the thing that i appreciate a about that is that you know, the one missing piece is the content knowledge. Like I wish that our teachers would come to us with a background on American history since they've got the skill on creating units. 
most teachers uh, have created units that are based on themes. Um, yeah. And theme is different than topic. Yeah. No, agreed, agreed. But at least they're, all I'm saying is they have, they're well skilled in creating, like, how am I going to teach this material? That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that they're doing it right, but they're, that is all that they have been trained in is pedagogical practices. Yeah. And to me, I'm like, there, there could be a, a balance between pedagogical practices and create the creation of units that the physical, like putting it together and paired with some content. So I think that we teachers are trained in how to do that. So to me, I'm like, they should do that. I want to I want to say one thing. I just want to jump in. I see you kind of, Robert, you're kind of thinking. I can see you thinking. I, I want to say just one thing first, you know, about policy. You know, I'm a policy girl. Right. I'm, I'm all for it. It just seems like with this movement now, even those who are uh, supportive of the science of reading, it, it, especially with policy, is that first the policy goes too far. And then now with this conversation, does the policy not go far enough? Right. You know, as far as as mandating, you know, these particular curricula. I also want to make the, the point about um, stakeholder awareness. Yes, Larry, there are teams, there are all these committees that are, are created to to identify these curricula. But when we think about school boards and those those entities that are responsible for approving these things, how many of them have this knowledge to say, well, you brought me this list and on this list, these do not even meet the criteria that was set forth. I think that we also have to do some things around stakeholder awareness. I've actually talked to school board members lately, even state board of education members that are like, we probably need to know a little bit more about the science of reading as we are the ones who are approving these decisions on this. So I think that stakeholder awareness, not a 100 hour PD on science of reading, but honestly, this is the rubric that we're using. This is our goal in identifying these certain curricula and that they should not have these certain practices or that they should have content knowledge and, you know, and, and, and all of that for knowledge building. But to your point, Casey, I, I hear you talking about, you know, a lot about teachers building units. Now, I haven't visited your school or your area, but when we think about the time that teachers even have for planning, you know, all of those things go into choosing a curriculum, right, Larry? If you, you're a vendor, you go to districts, you say, hey, there's a limit to time. Teachers don't have to plan a lot. Like all of this stuff is planned out for them. That's attractive, right? Yeah. To school districts that say we already have a teacher shortage. They don't have two hours of planning, all of those things. So how can we, you know, and, and I do agree, Susan, that leadership is key. There has to be a leader in that building, in that district that says that we're going to make adopting the right curriculum with knowledge, well, that's knowledge rich a priority, then we're going to be able to carve out the time that it takes to ensure that teachers know these things, in addition to the science of reading, right, and then, and this is how we're going to continuously support them, because it's also one thing that we haven't talked about. I think, Robert, you mentioned coaches, but we have to have some way, someone in there with teachers on the ground, helping them transfer all this knowledge into practice and by being supported and monitoring that on the ground. Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll say leadership is key um, to all the things, uh, investing in people, investing in their knowledge, that's going to be key to all the things. But when we can find a way to um, build that capacity of teachers to where they can look at this curriculum themselves and say, well, these are some ways in which we can uh, uh, you know, engage this content, we have to make that in, an intentional priority. And I think that a lot of those things as well, whether it's in policy or not, have to be done at the school and or district level. We don't have enough time for me to, to deliver my standard rant about how we make teaching too hard for mere mortals and how a lot of that too hard is the, the, the lesson planning and curriculum design work that we put on teachers, you know, that takes time away from 
other things they could be doing. Um, but let, let's let's be super candid here for a minute. I mean, I've probably given a hundred talks about content knowledge in the last ten years, and without fail, one of the first questions that comes up because I, and I don't I don't promote any particular you know curriculum or whatnot. I just try to you know basically you know teach teachers why background knowledge matters. The the, the hand goes up. Okay, whose knowledge? Isn't that the rub here, right? In other words, we don't we don't want to say whose knowledge. And I go back to Hirsch when when. You know, my my North Star was Don Hirsch's work, Evie Hirsch Jr., who, who and I'm going to broadly oversimplify his work, where he said that readers, uh, literate uh, writers and speakers assume their their listeners and readers are are dealing with the same body of background knowledge. So that's what you teach. You teach the knowledge that literate Americans know and assume you know, but that's got some cultural components to it, right? Isn't that really the issue here? think it was. I I think it, it was fashionable whenever somebody tried to anoint a body of knowledge to say whose body of knowledge, what power is behind that. I think one of the nice things is that assumption about what do literate Americans know has become much more diverse over the, the canon has expanded. The cultures that we acknowledge are part of this country uh, the the understanding of our history has become just broader in every in some sense because people asked that question 20 and 30 years ago. But I think the fashion of asking that question, while it is still alive and well on college campuses and in think tanks, I think in school districts and classrooms, it has been replaced with some understanding of we visited a school where they're doing knowledge. It seems pretty exciting. Uh, and I think there are now a few knowledge-rich curricula. We're one of them, but we're not the only one. And I think people look at them and say, I don't know that we have a canonicity problem here. It looks like they're teaching kids about lots of stuff and that, that this could be made culturally responsive. Um, so you can still find that question. There's no doubt that there is a certain amount of the tradition of knowledge that speaks to where power has been. But I, I wonder if that question is falling out of fashion and has is being replaced by some of the energy of kids wanting to know stuff and finding that question gets in their way. Okay. I mean, to me, the, the, the beauty of that Hirsch formulation is that, look, it's not canon making, it's a curatorial effort. It's, this is what, the, what readers and writers know, and therefore you need to know it too. And if we don't share that knowledge with you, we're imposing a form of illiteracy on you, really. I, yeah. I, I really disagree. I, I want to I jump in here. Um, I think we, without marking that we're doing it, we've shifted the conversation. We've been talking about the science of reading and how to implement that in schools and, and politically. And we've moved to a question of values and uh, science is silent on this issue. We're not talking about science of reading anymore. The science of reading says, you know, whose knowledge? Well, it depends on what you want them to be able to read. Whatever you teach them, whatever knowledge they acquire, they're going to be good at reading about that and thinking about that. Don Hirsch went the next step and said, I think it's really, you know, he made it an economic issue. He said, if you want economic success and power in this country, you need to know the kinds of stuff that other people who are literate know. That's fine, but that's a choice. And so I feel like you know, th this is an issue where local control really becomes paramount. It should be the parents of the children who are 
have a, a, a substantial say in what it is their children are going to become literate in. So I have yet a different view. <laughs> um, and what, what we've done um, is very simple, uh, to look at the content standards of fourth grade and up um, in math and science and social studies and art and um, and physical education. We say, what do children need to know in order to be successful in those content areas? And that has become the content that we think is absolutely essential that uh, kids need to learn. So much of these other topics are very important, but the child will not be able to read the content text of science if they don't have this background knowledge in place by fourth grade and beyond. And so that's how we define the content, Robert, that when people ask that question, because people ask it all the time, what is the content you are actually teaching? And, and our answer is content standards. Um, I am overdue in throwing this to audience questions, so I'm going to pull a few out of the queue and ask for just jump ball whoever wants to answer them. And, but let, since we're going to run short on time, keep them brief. Uh, so one question, are there any states who've adopted science reading uh, that have also thought about content standards for grades? Uh, in other words, aligning ELA assessment to state standards and social studies and science is connected to this work. I believe Louisiana was making some noises about it years ago. I honestly don't know if they've ever followed through, but Kamiana, you probably have a better lens on that than anybody. Is anybody being directive about content and aligning? Uh, um, I don't have a lot of knowledge of any state that has um, made that move intentionally um, to uh, align to align that. So do uh, Daniel or Susan? I don't. I think I think Louisiana social studies might be as close a case as as we have, and there are some steps in that direction in Texas at this point too. I would say. Uh, would it make sense? In other words, you know, there's no mystery what's going to be on a fourth or fifth grade math test. Fractions, decimals. Shouldn't shouldn't teachers know what the the domain knowledge, the passage subject is going to be on a fourth or fifth grade reading test? Of course. Is, I mean, to me, it's self-evident. Back to the standards, right? Like, yeah, I mean, like, how weird is it to say, like, there'll be a test? Like, I'm not telling you what's on it. Like, of, <laughs> of course they should. Of course teachers should know what's going to be on the test. It's ludicrous that they don't. But that's because, right, Dan, because we still, and this this is why I'm going to depress myself with, with this question, but this is because, correct, we still conceive of reading comprehension as a skill. Yeah. And we don't think Exactly, that. yeah. Right? Yep. So that will be that will be the the green shoot through the grass when states start saying, oh, you know what, we're gonna the fourth grade reading test is gonna be ancient Rome and the water cycle and metamorphosis. Then then we'll know that that the field has gotten it, right? I think so. Okay. Oh, I want to to push back on that. Okay. Um, you know, when you think about especially reading and you talk about skills versus knowledge and those things, when our students get to the point where they have to seek knowledge for themselves. Right. When they go out to the world, it's not going to be, well, you know, in this area, this is what you need to know to be successful. They need to be able to transfer the skills they've learned as to how to read, how to comprehend, how to infer, like reasoning. All of those things that we're talking about are lifelong skills that are transferable to anything that you're going to read or that you're going to make sense of, you know, as it relates to any type of media. 
Um, so, you know, I, I really kind of caution around um, just saying that, okay, fourth grade is going to be about this. And this is the knowledge that, again, who decides, right? That you really need to know and that we're going to test you on this knowledge. Um, I think that that's a, that's, that's a scaffold that will be really difficult to pull back as students begin getting into the world and learning more about the things that they also want to know more about. Um, so I just kind of push back on, especially when it deals with a state assessment, um, saying that in fourth grade in this state, this is these are the topics, right, that we're going to teach about. So this is what you need to know. I just I just wouldn't want to limit even teachers and students to these topics because now we know we need to know these topics in order to pass the test. And I just wanted to put that in there so that we don't forget about um, limiting students as well. Okay. Um, this this question's not directed at somebody, but I'm guessing it's going to be either for Casey or for Dan. Could you please give an example of, of knowledge-rich curriculum or content at the kindergarten level versus the third grade level? For example, is metamorphosis appropriate for kindergartners? Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, well, I would look at it like this. So um, so in the kindergarten, they'll talk about the presidents and they'll look at Mount Rushmore. And so it's a very rudimentary introduction to the presidents and the leader. So they could say like, I'd be the president of this school, you know, and we can kind of begin to introduce them to, a, to leadership. And then in all the other grade levels thereafter, we begin to get into, you know, the history of the U.S., let's say. And so we're, we're, we're just giving them a little taster. And by the way, when I go out to consult, we talk about how great this is for kindergartners. I just want to make sure everybody realizes this is not a kid thing. This is a human being thing. We're all this way. Um, my dad always talked about the birds on the back patio, not even like birds. And then I'd walk, I'm walking down the driveway to go get the mail and an Oriole will fly by. And I'm like, oh, there's an Oriole. And so if we can begin to introduce kids at an early age of, of basic information, then it's kind of this Velcro effect. So when they're in the older grade levels, they can attach that knowledge to it. And we're still that way, even to this day at our age. Uh, the more we know, then the more it's easy to add that information to it. Um, so, um, so I think that, oh, and I was going to mention this. The other kind of way to teach history is more of a kind of a look, think of it as a target. It's called an expanding history curriculum, or where the kids will, in the elementary kindergarten, they'll talk about me and then like family, community or neighborhood, city, and then states like fifth or sixth grade, and then U.S. history and world history. The problem with that is we, first of all, a kindergartner is a complete expert in themselves. So we spend the entire year talking about that. I can't think of a more egotistic. <laughs> I agree. And so, so we like spend the whole year talking about themselves. And even in the, in the, in the, Cornell's curriculum, that is a little portion of it. It's more about like hygiene and taking care of yourself, but they don't spend the entire year on that. But it's this assumption that a student at that age can't learn anything. And in reality, if we can give them a little tidbits of information at that early age, we can build on that as we go. The other problem with that expanding history curriculum is that we're saving US history till sixth, fifth or sixth grade. We're saving world history to like seventh grade or whatever. And so that teacher has the burden of teaching every single thing there is about the U.S. history or about world history during that time period. And then to top it off, you know, state history, you know, there just isn't like Colorado's not that old. If you want old, go to Boston. If you want old, go to Europe. If you want old, go to Africa. And so to spend a bunch of time on, let's say, Utah history, you know, Salt Lake City is not old. And so uh, to me, I'm like, that's not a, a year's worth of information. And so during that time, we could be spending, we could be spending more valuable time teaching kids 
U.S. history and world history from grades K through eight. This, this may be the, la the, the, the last question we have time for, but it's a good one to end on. Uh, what does this group suggest is the smartest and most realistic path to improving the adoption process overall? By that, I assume they mean the curriculum adoption process. And I'll handle the hell you want, district, state, individual, school. Because I think we, we more or less agree it's not really working right now, right? Right. I think that there are several tools that are out there um, that are considered kind of evaluation tools around um, the science of reading or, you know, curriculum that's the science of reading. I do believe that we can ensure that tools that are, are developed, you know, in the future explicitly, um, you know, point to how knowledge rich or how important knowledge being, you know, a knowledge building curriculum is important to that. Um, I'm a fan of a task force. I'm a fan of a team. I'm a fan of all of those things. Uh, but I do think that there will continue to be challenges when we talk about whose knowledge or which knowledge that we feel like they need to learn. Um, but I think that there are tools that are out there for that. And I think that if if teams can stick to those tools that they have or the tool that they have adopted in order to identify their curriculum, I think that that's the best and most transparent process. I'm a charter school guy. I'm a parental choice all the way. I believe that it's the parents' right and responsibility to direct the education and upbringing of their children. And we've seen that happen right here in Fort Collins where parents are not satisfied with the local schools and our seats are getting full every single day. And we plan to just keep getting bigger and bigger as parents want more of this education. And I believe that they're the people sitting closest around that kitchen table are the ones that are making the best decision for kids. And schools that are great will flourish, and schools that are not great will not be operating. And parents should be able to choose the best education for their kids. So I would add that one of the problems that at least I've seen is that vendors are giving, sorry, Larry, but um, Vendors are giving their yada da, and the most attractive um, shows often get to be the curriculum that are selected. And so, I think one of the one of the things that would be absolutely critical is to work with people who have used the curriculum and experienced the curriculum, and can talk about the challenges of adopting a particular curriculum and the joys of experiencing how children are actually learning. That would be more um, palatable than having vendor shows um, with lots of glitter, right? <laughs> I Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that there are states that put a real emphasis on trying the curriculum meaning everyone is actually testing it for a few weeks uh, at a time. And there are some states where teachers go into a room, they flip through it, or they see a half hour vendor presentation and they make a decision. I'm a big fan of trying it. I will say though, that trying it can be a challenge hmm. for the kind of knowledge transformation that we're talking about here. Because if I'm used to teaching people in my neighborhood and main idea worksheets and talking animal stories, and suddenly the thing I'm trying is the Civil War. Uh, like, I, I, that's knowledge I don't have. That's a way of teaching I haven't experienced before. So I guess I would say two parts is the try it part instead of the let vendors talk to you about it, the go visit other schools that are doing it, and that there is this leadership thing that is necessary in this, this uh, professional learning, which is... I think until there's a clear signal from 
the district, the state, that we we are expecting a knowledge-rich curriculum. So when you see that knowledge in the ones you're deciding to pilot, don't be afraid of it. You have to choose one that's got knowledge. Now figure out which one is working for you, which one's more teachable, which one your kids seem to be responding to. But I'm a big fan of the make them try it. Um, and yet give a frame for evaluation that, that uh, as Kimiana said, um, you know, a, a good rubric that is expecting a coherent knowledge build and that details at least the categories of knowledge that we're expecting to see if people are afraid to be prescriptive about knowledge. But sure, it'd be great to see at least a certain level of prescriptiveness and a certain amount of flexibility uh, in each in each grade so that that idea of something that we commonly know, something that is familiar when kids go from school to school uh, was was part of the story. Okay, um, let, let me conclude by telling you my fear about the science of reading movement. I, I, I've been saying all for years now, like, I can't believe that we're having this. It's great, but I'm afraid. And here's why I'm afraid. Uh, because I know that that driven nature of, of practice and policy, frankly, um, and absent a commitment to, to knowledge-rich curriculum, it is not hard for, for, and I'm not being a cynic, I'm being a realist when I say this, it's not hard for me to imagine a not too distant future day where we where we hear oh science of reading oh yeah we tried that it didn't work hmm. so uh, literally last question on a scale of zero to ten zero meaning no i'm not afraid of that whatsoever or ten meaning yeah i'm terrified like you are robert where are you casey well my uh, i'm oh, like an answer. i'm a, i'm in between i you got to do it right you got to do it right when we go to core knowledge schools that aren't successful it's because they're not really doing it and so you have to do content correctly. Kimiana? Um, I'll say an eight. And, I, and I'll say an eight. And, I'll, and I want to just say to policymakers who are who are watching this, give district, give states, give schools a runway. Like you can't listen to this and just be so, you know, like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be my thing. And I'm going to champion this and say we're going to change our new curriculum July 1. You yeah. do have to give that runway for a year so that they can go through the professional development and try the things out. And I think that if people thought that way, that we just can't make this shift, that we really have to give a runway in order to empower and prepare those responsible for doing it, I think that it'll be better. I agree with Casey that, you know, you have to do it the way that it's supposed to be done. Um, leadership is key, but I'll give it an eight. And I'll give it an eight because there are people like us who are behind this movement. Okay. Susan? Unfortunately, I give it a 10. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm a veteran of reading first, and um, I know some uh, how excited we were about the scientific approach to reading. Do you remember that term, Robert? Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and it didn't happen. And so I worry that the rhetoric um, will oversee um, real change. And I think that what we need to do is be sure to look at those children, because when we see children are learning and when we see children talking about content, maybe we can make a difference. And so maybe I'll be dead wrong to say a 10 and I'll come back next year and be delighted with change. Was your question about the confidence was 10 the highest? Yeah, the 10 is the highest. So, so I think you're probably a two then, Kamiana. No, you said 10 is the highest as far as 10, 10 means you're terrified it's going to fall. Oh, apart. terrified. Yeah, no. 
I'm a two. I'm <laughs> confident. <laughs> had to clarify that. Okay. Dan, what do you think? Yeah, I'm probably an eight. I mean, I, I think that what this conversation has shown is that there are a lot of people who uh, this will affect, this change will affect. And uh, in order to uh, all the all the pieces, have, you know, what we've seen in education is there is enormous inertia uh, and one unhappy group is frequently mm -hmm. enough if they if they dig their heels in. Um, people lose patience and uh, they they move on to something else. So lots of things have to happen. Uh, they have to happen in the right way and they need to happen relatively closely in time. Um, and so uh, I think for for the, for it for it to work, we need to bring everybody along and not only explain what's going on, but anticipate problems they're going to see that are particular to their perspective and uh try and help them solve those problems yeah and and develop patience as well i mean this is this is not a quick fix this is a slow growing plant right as don hirsch likes to say uh, language development and background knowledge that's that's an excellent point we should have touched on that larry you get the last word i'm gonna go with four and i in saying four i i want to say something that i hope will be gratifying to susan which is i think that these changes happen much more slowly than we notice and so the this moment of the science of reading taking hold is simply the work that susan and others did in reading first finally entering the bloodstream and it's just it can seem to susan like we tried and it and it didn't stick i actually think it's just a long um Process. absorption and we are now in a moment where there's a generation of teachers who have familiarity with what susan was saying back then and actually did learn more of it in school and actually have been trained on it in a way that it was all quite foreign in 2004 and so i i think that there is much more infrastructure in place to absorb this i think knowledge is the last frontier that there isn't infrastructure in place for but as i said i have some confidence that uh, things that are fun that teachers, once they try it, enjoy, have a way of taking hold. And so I think the the big ideas of reading are here now. And knowledge is the piece that has to happen. And I think things are tipping in the right direction. And I have to say, as a software guy, I also think the tools to support teachers are getting better. And so there's just there's instrumentation that wasn't there. There's support that wasn't there um, that is now. And so I'm not overconfident, but I'm a four. All right. Well, I am delighted to conclude this on that optimistic note. Uh, so thank you for that, Larry. Thank you to our panel. Thank you to our audience and have a great evening. Thank you.